Turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. I'm reading from our text from the King James Version of the Bible. Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and make manifest the Savior of His knowledge by us, in every place. I want to speak to you today on the subject, the triumphs of Christ. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we ask you this very moment, Lord, for you to be with us. We're praying that the Spirit of God, O Lord, would saturate this building, dear God, and satiate our thirst today. We're asking you, Lord, to let us experience your presence and your power in, by, and through your word In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can you thank God for his word today? Amen. It's very likely that the Apostle Paul had in his mind what is called a Roman triumph. And that is whenever a general had vanquished a foe and had been involved firsthand, commander-in-chief on the scene, on the ground, In the midst of the battle, it was the highest honor that a victorious Roman general could have. The battle had to be completely finished. Victory had had to have been complete, not not still skirmishes going on here and there. The region wherever the rebellion was taking place had to be pacified at peace, and the troops all had to have returned home. There had to be a positive extension of the Roman territory of the empire. And in that parade, that triumph, first would come state officials and the Senate. Then there would be golden trumpeteers blasting out. And then there would come spoils of war, treasures taken from that foreign land. In fact, One of the most famous uh, things in Rome today is the Arch of Triumph where they are seen bringing back, Titus is seen bringing back the spoils of war from his conquest of Jerusalem and the temple. And then they would lead uh, captive princes and leaders and generals all in chains who would shortly be flung into prison and probably be executed. Then there would come officials that were bearing uh, rods, followed by musicians playing on their lyres, and priests swinging golden censers of incense so that sweet-smelling perfume filled the air. And then after all of that came the general himself. You see a picture here in a uh, chariot drawn by four white horses in a purple tunic embroidered with golden palm leaves and over a purple toga marked with golden stars. In his hand there would be an ivory scepter with a Roman eagle at top, and over his head someone would be holding a crown. And with him in uh, in the train of his uh, procession there would be his family. And finally would come the army. And the army would come with shouts of triumph, cries of victory, And it is in law likelihood that that's what Paul pictured 
or pictured in his mind in 2 Corinthians 2.14, that he says that not only has Christ defeated the enemy, not only has Christ won the battle and won the war and is worthy of all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise due his name, not only is he caught up in this great fanfare, uh, this great parade of triumph, but that we also are going to be with him. And that because of his victory at Calvary, he also causes us to have victory, causes us to triumph. So what was Jesus triumphant over? What foes did he vanquish? What rebellions did he put down? What are the triumphs of Christ? Well, first of all, Jesus was triumphant over sin. Now, he had to deal with sin in his own personal life. Not that he had ever sinned, but the temptation to sin. So really, when Jesus starts his earthly ministry and is baptized of John in Jordan, he immediately goes into the wilderness and fasts for 40 days. And at the end of that fasting, Satan came through to him and tempted him. I'm not at all sure that Satan came to him in some bodily form. He may have. He may have appeared to Jesus so that Jesus saw Satan with his physical eyes in a physical form. But I think it's very likely that Jesus was tempted in the same way as we're tempted. And that is that Satan comes to us in the area of our mind. He and his demons whisper to us, and they utilize our natural desires, and our natural desires when fulfilled legitimately are not wrong. They're God-given. They're the way we're created. But he speaks to us in those areas and tries to get us to fulfill those natural desires that are legitimate in illegitimate ways. And that's what sin is. It's fulfilling natural desires in ways that are ungodly, ways that are forbidden. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in all areas of temptation as we were. It doesn't mean that he was tempted with every specific temptation. It does mean that he was tempted in the same types of temptation. You know this, we've talked about it before. In the garden, we see the three types of temptation. John uh, talked about it. John said that the love of the world is contained in these three, th uh, three things, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That's exactly how Eve was tempted. She looked at the fruit, and here's what the devil said to her. Doesn't it look good? That's the lust of the eyes. Wouldn't it taste good? That's the lust of the flesh. It'll make you wise, and you'll be like God. That's the pride of life. And so when Jesus came, Jesus was tempted in those same three ways. Now, this is not the only time he was tempted. The Bible says that after the temptations in the wilderness, that Satan waited for a more opportune time to tempt him again. This wasn't a one-off. This wasn't a one-shot and that was it. He had to deal with these things throughout his life. But at the moment of his weakness, the moment of his hunger, the moment that he had uh, fasted for 40 days, Satan began to tempt him. And he tempted him with the lust of the flesh. He said, you're hungry. If you're hungry, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus combated him with the word of God and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
And then he tempted him in the area of the lust of, of his eyes. He took him up on a high mountain so that he saw all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus again wielded the sword of the Spirit and said, it is written, thou shalt love the Lord thy God and him only shall thou serve and have no gods before thee. And then he took him up to the pinnacle of the temple. Can you imagine this? That Jesus, God in the flesh, the Son of God, Jesus was tempted to commit suicide. Did you know that? He took him to the pinnacle of the temple. He said, if you're really the Son of God, cast yourself off the temple. Because, and now, here's Satan so subtle, Satan twists the word of God and tries to use it to tempt Jesus. And he says, because it's written, right? It's written that he will keep thee from dashing your foot against the stone. So prove who you are. That's the pride of life. But again, Jesus outsmarts the devil and takes the word of God and said, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And Satan had to withdraw himself because the scripture tells us that if we'll draw close to God, he'll draw close to us. And if we'll resist the devil, he will flee from us. Somebody said the way to deal with temptation is to yield to it. No, it's resistant. If you'll dig in your heels and look the devil in the eye and say, in the name of Jesus, the Bible says that the old man that I was is crucified with the affections and lusts thereof, and I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus, and I don't have to do what I used to do. I don't have to go where I used to go. I don't have to say what I used to say. I don't have to behave like I used to behave. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus, and because of Jesus' victory and his pattern of victory over the devil, we know that we can take the word of God, and we too can be victorious over sin, flesh, and the devil. Amen, amen, and amen. Jesus won the triumph over sin. He also won the triumph over sanctimony. That is over legalism, over religion. Now you would think if there was anything that Jesus would come and applaud, put his stamp of approval on, pat on the back, it would be all those people that had been looking for him to come. It had been all those people that had been towing the line, all those people that had been trying uh, fastidiously to live up to the law, and yet those very people had become not righteous but self-righteous. They had become not holy, but they had become uh, sanctimonious. And because of that, they missed what they saw needed. They missed Jesus in the flesh. The Pharisees were one of those groups. The, the Talmud says that there were 613 laws, commands given in the Old Testament, 248 positive and 365 negative. But even that wasn't enough for the Pharisees. They said, we've got to have some fence laws. It's not enough just to have the commandment. We've got to extend that out so people don't even get close to breaking the law. So they had all these fence laws. They said that the law of God was not only explicit, revealed in commands of thou shalt or thou shalt not, there were also implicit commands that man had to dig out. The Pharisees believed that was not only the Torah, that's the first five books of the Bible, they also believed there was an oral 
an oral Torah, that is things that Moses said that were not written out. They believed in what was called the Parkabot, that the Parkabot was the uh, sayings of the fathers, or sometimes it's, con- it's called the tradition of the elders. Here's some of us. Let's just take one command. Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And you'll do no work in the Sabbath day. It's holy to the Lord. They said, that's not enough. So they created 39 fathers of works, 39 categories of works. Among these were reaping, spinning, winnowing, hoeing, threshing, beating corn, carrying burdens, lighting fires. So here's the way that their mind operated. It was working to tie a knot on the Sabbath day. But a woman, because they didn't have zippers, buttons, and fasteners, a woman couldn't get dressed on the Sabbath day without tying a knot. So they said it's okay for a woman to get dressed to tie a knot. So she can tie a knot in her dress, tie a knot in her apron. So if they went to the well and somebody had not left the, the bucket tied to the rope, you know what they'd do? They'd go inside and get mama's apron and tie a knot to the, uh, to the, to the bucket of mama's apron so they didn't transgress the Sabbath. See, they had all these little tricks of the trade of how to get around the law. They said, well, if you're not supposed to work and carrying burdens of work, how heavy a burden are we talking about? They said, oh, anything that weighs more than a dry fig. Just enough wine for a swallow. Just enough oil to anoint a baby's pinky toe. Can you pick up a child on the Sabbath day? Yeah, you can pick up a child on the Sabbath day, but not if that child has a rock in its hand. Can you carry a chair across the room? Yeah, you can carry a chair across the room as long as that chair doesn't have more than two crossbars. If it has more than two crossbars, it's a ladder, not a chair. And if you carry that chair, you got to pick it up and move it across the room because if you drag it across your dirt floor and it leaves two furrows in the dirt floor, then you've been, you've been uh, guilty of hiring and plowing on the Lord's day. You say, boy, this is, that's, that uh, burdens on the ridiculous. Well, let me tell you, you can go to Israel to this day and in the hotel that you stay in, on the Sabbath day, you don't push the button. It stops at every floor automatically. All the rest of the days, you've got to push the button for your floor. But on the Sabbath day, it stops on every floor automatically because you don't want to transgress the Sabbath by pushing the button. All this sounds really silly to you and I, but this was life and death, heaven and hell to them. This was what serving God had been condensed down to because here's what they took. They not only took what the law said, they took what the rabbi said about what the law said. And then the next generation would take what that rabbi said about what the law said, and they'd write a new commentary that was on what the rabbi said about what the law said. And the next generation, those rabbis would write a new commentary on the commentary of the commentary of what the rabbi said about the law. And in the fourth generation, they'd write a commentary on the commentary of the commentary of the commentary of the law. And the weight, the burden of how to live for God. All of a sudden, it's not about a heartfelt relationship with God. It's not about obeying God out of a a pure heart. All of a sudden, it's about who can live the closest and best by the law. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous to you, but some of us that grew up in Pentecost Remember a time that if a preacher didn't like a woman wearing white shoes, he'd preach against it, right? I, had, I knew a man that I, that I was told, I knew a man that the church he was a part of, 
they, they uh, had advised that Christians not go to professional ball games or to movies. And he said, Any, no Christian can go to a movie. And somebody said, well, you go to professional ball games. He said, well, that's all right. Nobody knows I do that. See, that's how silly it gets when you try to live by the rules. Right? Now, there were scribes that would copy the law of God from, from one scroll to another. And because they copied the law of God, they became experts in the law. And some of them were even known as lawyers. So it was their job to interpret and translate and they were, their, their whole reason for being was for people to come to them and find out every jot and every tittle. Dot every I and cross every T. Healing was a problem. Healing was a problem because um, if you healed on the Sabbath day, that was work. On the Sabbath day, you could keep somebody from getting worse, but you couldn't do anything to make them better on the Sabbath day. If they had a toothache, they could take some uh, sour wine or some vinegar, put it in their mouth, but if they swished it around and kind of drawn it, drawn it through that tooth so it made the tooth feel better, couldn't do that. If you had an earache, you could stick a piece of cotton in your ear, but you couldn't put any medicine on it. If you, were, if you cut your hand, somebody could wrap up a bandage, keep it from bleeding out, but they couldn't put anything on it, any ointment on it to make the hand any better. Here's what Jesus thought of all that, Matthew 15, 79. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you saying, this people draws nigh unto me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. I'm going to tell you right now, there are people that would have you try to live by their interpretation of what they think Christianity ought to look like. But I'm going to tell you, this is what we're going to be judged by. I'm not going to be judged by somebody else's convictions. Now, I don't flaunt my liberties. I don't use them as an occasion to offend somebody else. I, I, everybody's going to have to give an account to the Lord, and you've got to work out your own soul salvation with fear and trembling. But I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to base my life based on what some you know, renegade out there thinks I ought to do. I'm going to see what the Word of God says. Did you know Jesus never transgressed God's holy law? He never did. In fact, Jesus said, woe to those that would teach you to transgress God's holy law. In fact, he said, not a jot or a tittle. Those are just little marks like dotting an I, crossing a T. He said, just little accent marks. He says, not even a jot or a tittle is going to fall away from the law until all be fulfilled. Jesus didn't come. He said, don't think I came to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. We don't live under the Old Testament law, not because Jesus destroyed it, but because he fulfilled it. Right? So that's why we're not bound that, but because it's been fulfilled. But Jesus never rebelled. He was a good Jew. He never rebelled against God's holy law. But can I tell you, he went out of his way to, re to rebel against the traditions of men. His disciples would go through the field on the Sabbath day. They'd break 
they'd break wheat off and they would winnow it in their hands so they could eat the kernels. And the Pharisees says they're violating the law. Jesus didn't fall for that trick. In other words, they, the, his disciples, it was a tradition of the elders, you washed your hands before you ate. Jesus' disciples didn't do that. It wasn't, now, they had no concept of germs in that day. We're not talking about cleanliness. We're talking about ritual. They didn't do that. And then, listen, they would bring people to Jesus in the synagogues on the Sabbath day to stand back and look and see if Jesus would heal Remember the man with the withered hand came to Jesus and Jesus healed him on the Sabbath day and then they, they, they wanted to kill Jesus because he healed a man on the Sabbath day. Now in their law they had made provision if an ox or a donkey had fallen in the ditch you could pull him out on the Sabbath day but a donkey was more important to them than a man. You see they were going by the letter of the law but they had lost the spirit of the law. It was not heart for, heartfelt. Jesus said, I would have you know this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So whenever Jesus came up uh, on the Sabbath day and there was a man at the pool of Bethesda who had been there 38 years, Jesus said, rise, take up your bed and walk. And that, listen, this man had been lame for 38 years. He's carrying his bed on the Sabbath day. And the religious folks, all they could see, they could not see this man had been healed. All they could see is he was carrying his bed on the Sabbath day. Now I'm going to tell you something, and you, might, you may want to stone me, but listen to me. If Jesus came into most churches today, and upset the apple cart like he did in that day. Most Christians today would be as offended by Jesus as the Pharisees and Sadducees were in his own day. <laughs> Jesus is not worried about fulfilling what you think he ought to be. He's worried about whether or not you're going to conform to him and not the other way around. You know, the Sadducees, most of the Sadducees were priests and the priests were Sadducees. There were about 6,000 priests. There were 24 different courses. They didn't need all of them to work uh, at the same time. So they only, twice a year, they were called in duty. And then at three feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Passover, Feast of Pentecost, they all worked during those times. So these priests only worked five weeks a year. But you know what? They lived off of that livelihood all year long. Because all of the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of sacrifices that came in there. You know who ate that meat? The priest. You know what they did? They had more sacrifices than they had priests to eat it. You know what they did? They sold the rest of it. Priests were living high on the hog. Right? Now, the Lord didn't, didn't mind them. God had designed that they would live of, their, of that. It wasn't that God minded them prospering. It was that that became the goal. That became what it was about. The high priests were there because Rome had appointed the high priest. Those high priests that served at the time of Jesus were not even legitimate. They were appointed by Rome. And that's why when Jesus came in and the children began to cry out, blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord, they said, be quiet. They're going to come and take away our place and our nation. That's why the high priest said, it's better that one man should die than the whole nation should, merit, uh, should perish. They were, they were concerned about their own needs. 
But you know what Jesus did? Jesus on the day of his triumphal entry, listen, that's his dress rehearsal. The day of his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday was Jesus' dress rehearsal for what's going to happen when he returns. And we'll be riding with him. And as he goes in that day, you know what he does? He goes right into the temple and all of that big business that the church had going on, he kicked over the tables and he ran the money changers and those that sold uh, sacrifices out. And listen, I don't think he was just talking to those money changers and those sellers of doves. I think he was talking knowing that the priest and the high priest were listening and I think he was saying to all of them, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. He had a battle and he won the battle. He had a triumph over sickness. I wish I had time to develop this. I don't. All that I can tell you is when they'd bring a blind man to him, he'd, all he'd had to do was spit in the dirt, make a little mud and rub it in the blind man's eyes and say, go wash in the pool and the blind man could see. When they would bring to him someone that was deaf and mute, all he had to do was to stick his fingers in the ear and press his spittle against the mouth and the deaf could hear and the mute could speak. When he came to those that were paralyzed, all that he had to say was rise, take up thy bed and walk and they had to obey. There was a centurion that came to him and said, my servant is sick. And Jesus said, well, take me to your, uh, to your house and I'll heal him. He said, you don't have to go. I know how this works. I know what authority looks like. All you've got to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. And he was healed that very moment. And when the lepers came to him, all he had to do was reach out and touch the leper. And the leprosy didn't get on Jesus, but his healing power got on the leper. And the leper was made whole as white as snow. I want you to know that whenever Jesus came up against death, it was no match for him. He was the triumph over the sentence. See, we all are living under a death sentence. Did you know that? The soul that sins shall die. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But when Jesus came in contact with a mother weeping in the funeral procession of her young son. All he had to do was walk up and touch the coffin and the young man got up. When Jairus begged, come to my house, my little girl's sick and because Jesus is waylaid and he gets there and she's already died, Jesus said, she ain't dead, all she's doing is sleeping. And they laughed him to scorn, but he cleared the room. And he looked down at her and he said, my little lamb arise. And she got up. When his best friend died and was rotting in the tomb for four days, all Jesus had to do was to stand at the edge of that grave and say, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man got up and walked out of the tomb. Jesus had a triumph over himself. See, the man, the woman that has real power in life is not the man or woman that can control others. 
It's the man or the woman that can control themselves. That's where the real authority comes in life. And Jesus, even though he was very God of very God, was also very man of very man. And he did not want to die. He did not want to be whipped. He did not want the the beard plucked out of his face. He did not want to be punched and sped upon. He did not want to be nailed to a rugged cross. And worse than that, he did not want the sin of the whole world laid on him and the wrath of God poured out on him. He did not want to do it. So his last night before the cross, he spent all night long praying and begging the Father if there's any, any other way. I believe in the Garden of Gethsemane, I believe he was under demonic and satanic attack as he prayed. My father-in-law the other night in the hospital battling cancer He dreamed all night long that the demons were coming after him. He woke up with his knuckles sore because in his dream he had been hitting at demons. Jesus was up under such strain and pressure that he sweated blood. But at the end of it all, He looks up and said, but not my will, but thine be done. He triumphed over his own self-interest. And even though, even though we've been born again and are going to live forever, guess what? Our bodies are decaying away day by day. From this pulpit, for 11 years, you've been watching me die. Right? And even though Jesus had authority to raise raise the dead, every one of them... It was just a temporary reprieve. They died again. So Jesus went toe-to-toe with death itself. Cried out, it is finished, and gave up the ghost. Buried in a barred tomb, sealed with a heavy stone. The imperial seal of Rome marked the spot Guards at the entrance lest anyone should steal him away. But how many knows on that first Easter morning, the angel rolled the stone away. And Jesus who said, I have the power to lay my life down and I have the power to take it again. Got up, victorious over death, hell, and the grave walked by Satan, grabbed the keys and said, they belong to me, bad boy. Defeated him once 
and forever. And Jesus, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And Jesus went toe to toe, went down in the grave, came out the other end, victorious, the conqueror, the winner. And he triumphed over Satan. I don't want you to kid yourself. We're facing an enemy that's powerful. He's not some little imp that sits on your shoulder in red tights with a comical pitchfork and horns. He is the most powerful of all of the angels. Even still, even still, he operates under an allowed authority and power that God has given him. He's powerful. But let me tell you, he now resigns resides under house arrest. He's got some limited movement. He's got some limited freedom. But his fate's already been decided. You say, boy, he's at his work. You know what the Bible tells us? That as he sees his demise approaching, he will rage in his anger. He is mad because he knows his time is limited. He's trying to go out with a bang, but let me tell you, he's been defeated. Colossians 2.15, listen to this. Jesus having disarmed. This is the word that was used when a conquering army would come into a defeated army and gather up all of their weapons and strip them of their armor. He disarmed principalities and powers. And he made a public spectacle out of them. Triumphing over them in it. Now let me tell you something. If Jesus can go toe to toe with death. And toe to toe with the devil. And win the victory. If he can heal and deliver, and save, and raise the dead. If he could do all of that, don't you think that whatever your battle is, whatever your war is, whatever your trouble is, whatever's raging against you, whatever rebellion the enemy's bringing against you, don't you think the one that dispelled and disarmed the powers and principalities of the air. Don't you think the one that conquered death, the one that was alive and was dead and now lives forevermore, don't you think that your battle is no problem for him? When those priests were walking in that triumphal entry for the general, with those golden censers, waving those censers, 
We don't know much about it in, in Pentecost. If you go to one of the high churches, if you go in a Catholic cathedral, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. We don't do the smells and bells around here. But if you've ever been in that, you'll know what they're talking about. There's a censer that just with smoke boiling out, incense, fills it with fragrance. They're swinging that. And as they go down through the streets with that Cochrane General, the perfume, the fragrance of victory is heavy in the air. But for those that have been conquered, it's the smell of defeat. For the conquerors, it's the smell of victory. For the conquered, the vanquished, it's the smell of defeat. Here's what the Apostle Paul said about us. 2 Corinthians 14 and 15. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those that are being saved and among those who are perishing. It matters how we allow the Lord to comfort us in our battles. Because God is trying through us to be a fragrance to others. I called Brother Spivey when I heard about Tammy. I'd called him the day before and checked on him, and he was having such a terrible day. He was so sick. He said, I, I'm either going to have to get better or, or die. He said, I, I'm not, I just can't take it. And then that very night, Tammy passed. So I called him the next day. Two weeks ago, his brother-in-law passed. One of his sister-in-laws in a hospital really fighting for life, Johnny Kate. He himself sick with COVID in the hospital. And then they have to go into his sick room and tell him that his little baby girl his baby had passed. And I called Brother Spivey. You know what he wanted to talk to me about, what he wanted to tell me? He said, well, it's tough and we're hurting and it hurts and you never want to live to see the death of one of your children. He said, but she was such a wonderful gift from God, such a blessing to everybody everywhere she went. Everywhere she went, she was witnessing about the Lord. And God knows what was coming in her life. God knows best. God knows what was best. 
And we're just going to have to trust the Lord. Now I'm going to tell you, there are silly people in this world that look at that and say, oh, how defeated. No. It's a wonderful fragrance of the victory of our God. Because the world, all they've got is the here and now. Whether I got money here and now, whether I got food on the table here and now, whether I'm living in a nice house here and now, or got nice clothes, or driving a nice car, whether I'm prosperous, whether or not I feel good, whether or not I'm good in the body. If you look at the way the world looks at it, it doesn't seem like there's much hope. But I'm going to tell you, our hope is not in this world or what it has to give. Our God through Christ has defeated death, hell, and the grave. And he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And so we're already marching on to victory even in the midst of our enemies. You know what David said? You know what David said? He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Right? And he lays out a spread before me, even in the presence of mine enemies. And while I'm here, goodness and mercy is going to follow me. But one of these days, I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do not allow yourself to be defined or discouraged by what you see here and now. We serve an eternal God who's got an eternal home, an eternal reward waiting for you and I. Would you stand across this building? Father, in Jesus' name, oh God, would you touch your people today? In uncertain times, oh God, let us trust And Lord, there are people here that don't have that assurance. They don't have that faith. But they want it. They want it. God, please let them take what faith they have and put it in you. Lord, it's like a little seed, God, but if they'll plant it and give it to you, it'll grow, Lord. 